Ofen. So, um, in this last talk for the year, I'm going to be speaking about one of my favorite Zen teachers. Um, he was uh, in the 17th century. His name is Bankei, uh, his spiritual name. He lived from 1622 to 1693 in Japan. He's uh, one of the teachers that we could, um, who teaches what's called the direct path or sudden enlightenment. Um, I prefer the, the direct path as the teaching. And this runs throughout the history of Zen. Um, as contrasted to what we might describe as the gradual path. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, but the, 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 the direct path was, I guess, we can trace that all the way back to Bodhidharma, the first ancestor who came to China from India around about the 5th century BC, through to the uh, third ancestor, the Faith in Mind poem that we just read out, through to the sixth ancestor, Hunang, um, um, and then down through a number of teachers, such as uh, Obaku, Japanese Obaku, who was the teacher of uh, Rinzai, and uh, and then Bankei, and and so on through the lineages. Um, so Bankei is in the Rinzai lineage, which was founded by Rinzai or Linchi in in Chinese. Um, but he was quite. Um, different to um, the most famous Rinzai teachers, probably Hakuin. We sometimes read Hakuin's Song of Zazen. Um, Hakuin, who was teaching in the 18th century, was uh, the main person who consolidated what's known as the Koan curriculum. And so there was a, um, a sense in which Hakuin's teaching was a a gradual progression of insights and more insights and more insights and more insights and trying to um, deepen one's understanding, which is fair enough. And uh, But it was a long, long journey um, and one that was really only accessible to monastics. Um, wasn't really accessible to lay people in those days. Uh, but um, prior to Hakuin, uh, Bankei Prior to this, uh, this systematized, systematized, you know, the way in which the, the, the koans were systematized in this curriculum by Aquin, prior to that, Bankei became a very popular teacher. And, uh, and um, so the, the direct path is really something that we're all familiar with. We've talked about it a lot. And, and basically, the direct path teaching teaches us that what we're searching for is here all the time. And um, so, in a way, even though the, the there may be a journey in the direct path, but the journey is more circular. It's kind of like we start off at home and then we get lost, and then we find our way back home again. And that you know, that might take a few years, and maybe we find our way home and get lost again, and we find our way home again. But, but this the sense in which in the direct path teachings, it's always here, right now. It's always available. It's not something which is really esoteric. It's not. It's not hidden. That which what, which we're searching for is not hidden. Whereas in the uh, more gradual path and uh, 
especially in the Cohen curriculum, it can sometimes seem as if uh, we're never quite there or we've never quite got it. And so one has to keep, it's more like a linear journey in a sense. Um, but I think the two paths come together at the end. So like uh, eventually someone who's on the gradual path will eventually realize the direct path and also realize that they were, they were always here all the time anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Um, the, um, I'll just say a few things about Banke's life, which is pretty interesting. He was um, born the son of a samurai, and uh, his father died when he was about 10 years old, um, which is often one of the uh, biographical details of a lot of Zen teachers, of the loss of parents. And um, one can imagine this was quite traumatic for him, and uh, at the age of 11, so his as it was the custom in those days, his elder brother became head of the household. And um, Banke was always very close to his mother, though. And um, anyway, he was sent to this Confucian school at about the age of 11. And uh, in this particular Confucian school, there was a, a, uh, this book called The, um, the Great Way um, of Learning. And one of the first... Um, teachings in this, in, this, in this Confucian book was said the, uh, the great way sorry, the way of great learning lies in clarifying bright virtue and um, Banke became, became quite sort of obsessed by well, what, is this, what is this bright virtue what is, what is it and uh, he couldn't find a satisfactory answer from any of his teachers and, uh, and he became increasingly disobedient and you know, refused to go to school and so eventually, when he was about 11 years old, his, um, oh, just prior to that, um, he must have become so uh, distressed um, that he actually tried to commit suicide at the age of 11. Apparently, he went into the graveyard, the local graveyard, and, and gathered together what was supposed to be poisonous spiders. And he, he ate all these poisonous spiders with the intention of dying, but... Uh, he woke up uh, fully alive in the morning, so they couldn't have been as poisonous as the, he, he thought they were. And um, so um, he um, then became increasingly more disobedient, refused to attend school, and so his elder brother kicked him out of the house. And uh, um, but he he um, for a few years, about five years, uh, from about you know like age eleven to sixteen. He sought guidance in some of the local temples, the Shingon Temple and a, a, a Pure Land Temple, different sort of uh, Buddhist sects. Uh, but uh, didn't find what he was searching for there. And then um, when he was about 16, he went on a 20-mile journey um, to this Zen teacher, and, uh, whose name was Umpo Zenjo. So he traveled all that way on foot to meet this master, uh, who then he asked to ordain and instruct him, so he became a monk. And um, he studied under this particular Zen master for about three years. Um, but um, so he was about 19, still hadn't found any peace of mind. And um, so then he went on a, a pilgrimage, as was traditionally the case in the, in the Zen tradition with, uh, in Japan. The, uh, Many monks would go on a, on a pilgrimage of a number of years as part of their training. And uh, during this uh, pilgrimage, um, he still found no peace of mind, and so he returned to his teacher. 
And his teacher apparently said to him, It's your desire to find someone that keeps you from your goal. Quite wise. And so this prompted another two-year stretch of very ascetic practices. Um, he was a very determined young man. So he'd spend uh, days sitting on a hard rock doing zazen. Um, he um, did these um, sort of um, seven-day retreat where you fasted from all sleep and all food, so no sleep and no food for seven days. He, he stood in this, this, this river up to his neck doing this meditation. So it, very sort of similar to the uh, original Shakyamuni Buddha. He all these various ascetic practices to try and discover his true nature. And of course, uh, none of them brought him any peace of mind. And so, um, finally, um, uh, he was um, so um, uh, exhausted by, by all these you know, trials and ordeals he, he, he put himself through that he was actually became quite ill. And uh, from all accounts, he was coughing up blood, so it's some kind of tuberculosis or lung disease that he had. And uh, apparently he was quite close to death's door at 25 and uh, he was refusing to eat food and uh, he was sitting in his little meditation hut on the mountain somewhere and then it must have been spring because he there was this he was sitting in, in meditation and there was this little waft of plum, plum blossoms that drifted in through his hut and it was uh, on just the scent of the plum blossoms he, he, he had his you know his realization he, his awakening and and at that point in time, he, he spat out this big glob of black phlegm, <laughs> which trickled down the wall of his heart. <laughs> and he felt much better. And, <laughs> um, and he um, basically um, sort of more or less said that he saw in a flash that all his suffering had been needless. That what he later called the unborn Buddha mind of illuminative wisdom is ours by birthright, never wanting. So um, he then returned uh, to the original teacher and he received um, uh, Dharma transmission in the Rinzai lineage, who was formerly a teacher, and, uh, and he began to teach. And uh, he said he was available to go anywhere. So he, would, uh, he wandered all over Japan and uh, he, um, he would... Um, he, he, he was quite radical for his days and, and, and sounds really very contemporary in many ways. Um, he, 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 he didn't um, teach the koan curriculum because in those days the, the koans were all written down in, in Chinese and most of the population didn't know Chinese, so that was fairly an elite thing. So he taught in the common vernacular. He taught equally to men and women. Uh, to people who were working the land, to merchants, to seniorize, to all the different classes and levels of society. Um, and he, um, he became very popular. And, um, and I think that was because one of the reasons that attracts me to him is he kept his teaching very accessible and very simple. Um, so um, he taught that you could um, you know, you can grasp your Buddha minds very easily right where you sit without having to go through that kind of long sort of painstaking practice. And um, 
he wouldn't tolerate, you know, you've probably heard those stories of Zen teachers sort of beating or scolding their students, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't tolerate anything like that. Um, and nor, nor did he allow begging by his monks. Um, his, um, he didn't allow begging neither. So um, His retreats were very, very unstructured compared to traditional Zen, so there was a lot of emphasis placed on giving of a talk, on questions and answers. Um, he would um, engage in, in conversations with people about all different issues from their own everyday life. Um, he, um, he allowed up to, on, on, a, on a formal retreat, he allowed up to six days, or six hours, sorry, of, of, of Zazen meditation practice, but people were free to come and go, so they didn't have to do really formalized group sitting. So it was a very unstructured, very free kind of uh, teaching. And at, uh, at one stage, near the end of his career, there was a, a huge uh, training period that they do uh, near the end of the year in Japan, and there was hundreds and hundreds of people would come from different Buddhist sects and from all different walks of life. To the, you could, couldn't possibly fit everybody in, they had to build an extra zendo and meditation hall. Um, one of the, the uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a few poems, this is an excerpt from one of his poems called Song of Original Mind. Um, the mind that's not conditioned is originally unborn. What is conditioned doesn't exist. That is why there is no delusion. Though the years may creep ahead, mind itself can never age. This mind that's always just the same. Wonderful, marvelous. When you've searched and found at last the one who will never grow old, I alone. So um, he taught this unborn mind teaching and uh, he would teach it very simply. He would say to people, you know, while you're listening to my words in this talk, you can hear the cars going past outside. You can hear the, he would say, the crows cawing, or the, we might say the kookaburras calling, or whatever. And your mind clearly distinguishes those sounds. He said, that's your unborn mind. It's operating and functioning all the time. Just that we don't notice it. We don't bring our attention to it. So what he's talking about basically is just this aware presence that we all are. This was his teaching of the, the unborn mind, the, the mind that's unconditioned, um, that's always here. He would say that you know, we're, as, a, as a baby we're born with this unborn mind. And then of course we, we become the, these delusions that creep in later, how we get caught in the conceptual mind, the various layers of conditioning that we get caught into. Um, and, um, but what is conditioned, he says, doesn't exist. So what he means by that is that really the only thing that really is real is this present awareness, this unborn mind, and everything else is just this phenomena that's arising and falling in the mind, which doesn't have any substantial existence, because it's coming and going out all the time. And the only time it's here is when it's actually in our unborn mind. And in a way, the contents of the mind are not separate from the mind, so the awareness and the contents are one and the same. Um, so it's here in this unborn mind that there's, there's no delusion. Everything becomes resolved in this unborn mind. And he says, though the years may creep ahead, this mind itself never changes, since it's the one constant thing that persists throughout our lifetime. This mind that is hearing birds right now is the same mind that was 
hearing the birds when we were five years old and when we were twelve years old. So the mind itself doesn't age in that sense. Our body ages, but the mind doesn't age. And, um, and this mind's always just the same. And uh, when he says, when you've found the one who will never grow old, when you've established yourself and become intimate with the one mind, he says, I alone, which is a reference to what the original Shakyamuni Buddha said when he came to his enlightenment under the Buddha tree, I alone. Um, it's, it's, it's that I of the I am. It's not the, the little I or the little me, the, what we call the self-centered self. He's, uh, using the I here in the, as the I of the, of, of, the, of the great awareness, of the unborn. And there's only one awareness. It's I alone. I am. Um, in 1680, his mother died, and she had become a, a Buddhist nun uh, at that time. And apparently, he'd, he'd been so devoted to his mother, he used to say that the only reason why that uh, he'd been driven to such, um, you know, through all those ideals, was to to realize his, his enlightenment was his desire to communicate the truth to his mother. Um, so yeah, so I said at the height of his career, nearly seventeen hundred monks from various sects attended his long training period, and um, so you know his his entire teaching could be reduced to that sing, single ad, admonition: abide in the unborn, abide in this aware presence that we are. You don't need to force you know your way to find it. You don't have to earn it in any way. It's um, it's ours from the very beginning. It always was and always will be. You know? The whole notion of the treasure always being here, and we go in search of the treasure, and we come back and we find it was always here. So rather than trying to be Buddha, simply be Buddha. Um, and uh, you know, very much like you know, Joko teaches, he would talk about the self-centered self-centeredness in his in his teachings. And I'll just give you a quote from one of his. He never wanted, he didn't, he didn't write anything except for the poems, but he didn't want his, uh, his uh, talks recorded, but some of the uh, participants on the retreats made some notes. So the only collection we have of his teaching is, the, is, the, is these kind of records that were taken by other people at the time. So here's one of his little uh, talks. Um, so one day the master, Bankei, addressed the assembly and he said this, all delusions, without exception, are created as a result of self-centeredness. When you're free from self-centeredness, delusions won't be produced. For example, suppose your neighbors are having a quarrel. If you're not personally involved, you just hear what's going on and don't get angry. Not only do you not get angry, but you can plainly tell the rights and wrongs of the case. It's clear to you as you listen who's right and who's wrong. Let it be something that concerns, but, but let it be something that concerns you personally, and you find yourself getting involved with the other party and whatever the other party says or does, attaching to it and obscuring the marvelously illuminating function of the Buddha mind. Before you could clearly tell wrong from right, but now, led by self-centeredness, you insist that your own idea of what's right is right, whether it is or not. Becoming angry. You thoughtlessly switch your Buddha mind for a fighting demon 
and everyone takes to arguing bitterly with each other. Because the Buddha mind is marvelously illuminating, the traces of everything you've done are spontaneously reflected. It's, but it's when you attach to these reflected traces that you produce delusion. Thoughts don't actually exist in the place where the traces are reflected and then arise. We retain the things we saw and heard in the past and when these things come up they appear as traces and are reflected. Originally thoughts have no real substance. So if they're reflected, that is reflected in your mind, just let them be reflected. If they arise, just let them arise. If they stop, just let them stop. As long as you're not attaching to these reflected traces, delusions won't be produced. So long as you're not attaching to them, you won't be deluded. And then, no matter how many traces are reflected, it will be just as if they weren't reflected at all. Even if a hundred or a thousand thoughts spring up, it will be just the same as if they never arose. It won't be any problem for you. No thoughts to clear away, no thoughts to cut off. So understand this well. So in a way, it's kind of like reminds me of the teaching of the sixth ancestor with the with the with the mirror. You know, the mirror is often used as a metaphor. The mirror mind is often used as a metaphor for the unmind, for the unborn Buddha mind. And um, and remember the uh, the story of the sixth ancestor, where the the head the head uh, student was. Uh, said he would sort of like need to polish the mirror all the time, whereas the, the sixth answer said from the beginning there was you know, no merit in the first place, there's no need to polish anything, no need to get rid of anything. So if one understands clearly in that way that thoughts themselves are insubstantial, then we won't get caught into the thoughts, we won't become attached to the thoughts and then there's no need to, you know, to try to, to block them or stop them in any way. Um, so that's where we were saying, like I was saying in the in the meditation earlier on, um, that metaphor of the oceans are very helpful and to understand the unborn mind. Just the sense of uh, we are just being, you know, we're just being. We just this being awareness. We all participate in this being awareness, and. Um, you can see this being awareness is the great ocean and, uh, and all the waves are what we get entangled into, the various shifting patterns that arise and fall. And if we identify with the wave, if we identify with a particular emotion, thought, then we forget that we are the ocean and we become the wave and we become that sense of separateness and we have all the anxiety around, you know, crashing and falling. And, um, However, if we never lose contact with the fact that actually we're the ocean, these are just the waves, then uh, we have no fear in that way. And the waves can just come and go uh, without disturbing our deep peace and happiness and, and love that the ocean is. It's just this wonderful accepting of everything that's arising and forming, all the phenomena. So the ocean just being this metaphor for this great unborn mind, this Buddha mind, or this great aware presence that we all are. And it's effortless because that's who we are. We don't have to spend hours of rigorous discipline trying to find it. It's here all the time. So when we just listen, 
it's here, it's manifesting, just being this presence, just being this awareness. Accepting of everything. And then when, when we're being this, this openness, this awareness, this great ocean, then our actions will come more spontaneously from that place, that place in which everyone's okay, we're okay, perfect just as we are, not lacking in anything, totally complete, and our actions will arise from that, rather than our actions arising from the sense of being away, and actions arising from a sense of anxiety or fear. So, we're all fundamentally okay. We just have to become intimate with this awareness that we already are, right here and right now. So that's Banke, and um, I recommend him very much. Um, no, that was a, um, a poem by the third ancestor. So. Uh, the third ancestor would have been a Chinese teacher mm -hmm. from much earlier than Bankei, mm -hmm. but very similar in the uh, sentiments it's expressing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so any, any sort of um, any questions? It sounds very simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it was interesting what um, sort of woke him up to it was that sort of that nature thing, the scent yeah. of, the, of the blossom mm -hmm. that was really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that was a positive thing rather than all that self-punishment. And it was and just there. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 Yes, and it's the simplicity that's missed. Mm. It's right before your nose. Mm. Right under your nose. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm.